Alyssa, welcome back from Finland. Oh Hi. my goodness. There's so much sunshine here. <laughs> I'm looking out my window like, what? Oh wait, you're in New York and I'm in Alabama where there's no sun. Like, yeah. I'm just like super excited when the sun rises before like 10.30 in the morning. <laughs> like sunshine. <laughs> and then it's still out after 3.30 in the afternoon. Oh, that's brutal. But oh my know, gosh. Honestly, I think I'm more concerned about how well I handled it. I didn't struggle with the lack of daylight anywhere near as much as I thought I would. Why are you concerned with that? I have seasonal affect disorder in the U.S. I couldn't imagine coping well, with that. It's like I must be a mole person or something to not be affected by it. I'm, I'm a little concerned about what it means about me. It means that you're a flexible, adaptive human. We are recording, so I, sh so I should say... Hey, Kara, welcome to the Sausage of Science. Hey, Chris, it's been like a month and a half since we've recorded an interview. It's really nice to see you again. Yeah, likewise. And you're talking about sleep cycles. It's actually making me think about some questions that we, did, that we don't have on the itinerary today. But I thought before we bring on uh, Andy Sorensen, who is probably waiting for us right now, because it's, it's time. Maybe we could spend a minute just sort of talking about what we're going to talk about. All right, sounds good. So Andy Sorensen, real interesting. It's the kind of work I've been peripherally familiar with, uh, and it kind of intersects really well with a project that I'm about to start, as well as a review paper I've been asked to write, looking at Neanderthal thermoregulation and energetics. And so I'm really excited to hear his side of Neanderthals and fire use and did they have controlled use of that fire versus just kind of taking advantage of fire in nature? And it'll be a really interesting kind of cultural implication for Neanderthals and what they were able to do uh, and how they were able to manage their really harsh interglacial climates. And just hearing you talk about Finland and the, the length of the day, it makes me think how did having access to fire or controlled use of fire over several hundred thousand years affect the circadian rhythms of Neanderthals there's been some discussion about that type of change in our sleep-wake cycle vis-a-vis -vis fire with Homo sapiens, but I, I don't think I've seen anything on it with mm -hmm. Neanderthals. And, and my big question is sort of, he's making a case, I think, for Neanderthal were able to start fires mm -hmm. and how they started fires, but nobody, as far as I know, actually mm -hmm. knows that about homo sapiens either so i'm wondering why neanderthals and it also gets into and you know i have as one of the questions of you know human exceptionalism like of course humans are able to make fire and control it and of course neanderthals were just too stupid to do that uh and you know he talks about some of that in a couple of his papers which is great but another thing that you know to go back to finland sorry uh but while i was there you know we got three hours of duskish daylight during the early part of my trip and that you know extended while i was there but it also made me realize how important additional light sources that are not necessarily useful for actually doing anything, how important that is to everybody in Finland this time of year and how important it became to me. I had these little lights that I turned on every day at like 4.30 p.m. I had candles that I lit every single day. And I noticed as I was walking around Rovaniemi that everyone's house had these lights as well. All of these kind of decorative lights that they don't actually serve a purpose functionally for you know seeing in somebody's house 
but they served a purpose, I think, mentally and emotionally. And that also makes me think about along with your question of circadian rhythms and fire. I mean, how much was fire, you know, absolutely necessary and how much of it could have also just been, and this goes along with your work too, a comfort. Mm just a comforting presence when you have so little daylight in the dead of winter. Yeah. Shall we get them on? And while we wait, you can find Kara and I online. We don't have to do this always at the end, do we? Chris underscore L-Y on Twitter. I am at Kara Akabak on Twitter. You can also hey. find us on Facebook, the, the Human Biology Association site, uh, the podcasts there. We're all over the place. I believe Andy is on Twitter, Twitter as well. He is on Twitter? He has fire around his thing, which now I want to steal. While we wait for him, hopefully, to get our email, I want to say how I, I came across his work because I have done some research on fire. I look at the cognitive, I wouldn't say I look at the cognitive evolution because I can't test for evolution, but I look at variability and relaxation response because of hypotheses about sitting around fire for long periods of time. I think he's coming. I think he's coming. There's a, oh, there he is. Hello. Hello. Working. You can hear me. Well, we yes, can. we can hear you. Brilliant. And we are already recording. Carrie and I were just chatting a little bit uh, and introducing the episode. Welcome out of the show. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, thank you for taking the time. And so, so everyone is aware that Andy is five hours ahead of where I am right now and six hours ahead of where Chris is. Actually, is six and seven, I oh, think. Six and seven. Okay. So yeah. I just want to preface everything with how we come to be talking to you. So this is a, a podcast for the Human Biology Association. Are you a paleoanthropologist or archaeologist? What do you consider? I'm, I'm more of a paleolithic archaeologist. Okay. And you're at the University of Leiden? Yep. And you study fire with Neanderthals. And we're going to get into to some of the papers that you've done in just a few minutes. But um, because it may not be obvious to everyone listening, I wanted to sort of give a preface to why we invited you on the show. Um, okay. We basically invite people on who we want to talk to. We're really selfish. Why not? Why not? <laughs> but I have colleagues in the Human Biology Association who study things like sleep, and we've always been looking at, uh, interested in the intersection between fire and sleep and how, how they have interacted throughout human evolutionary history. So it will make sense to lots of folks, but serendipitously, you, you've been out there doing research for a while, and I just totally missed it. have been doing fire research more on the side than central, so I haven't been reading the literature lately, and a master's student at Leiden reached out to me last week or the week before to ask me if there'd been any follow-up on my work, and I was curious as who she was working under that might be doing research that's relevant. And it, and it led me to your work and that of some of your colleagues there. So, yeah. so I have a lot of catching up to do. <laughs> yeah. It's like computer technology. You, you check out for a few months and everything's obsolete. That's pretty much it. So the way we always start is we ask the guests to tell us your anthropological origin story. I know you're from Iowa, not from Leiden, and your accent tells us you're, you're a fellow <laughs> American. Sure. Like I usually tell people, I mean, as a kid, I used to dig holes and start fires for free. So having the opportunity to be paid to do this is uh, actually quite a joy. So yeah, I was always very interested in archaeology and also geology as a kid. I had the rock collection and, and all that. 
you know, and then I, I started going more towards the history side of things through high school. And that, that's what I went to go study at uh, Cornell College in Mount Vernon, Iowa, for my undergrad. But then um, during that time for fun, I guess to satisfy a science credit, I took the intro to geology uh, course because like, well, I liked it then. Why wouldn't I like it now? And that sort of really reignited my love for geology. And so I instantly added that as a major. And then um, I took a, also just for fun, an intro to archaeology course, which I really enjoyed. And then the professor put on a small field school at a state park near the college there. And so I joined up with that and went and did some uh, excavations uh, in the woods. And I completely fell in love with the process. I thought it was great. Uh, fresh outdoors, digging in the dirt, finding really nice things. And so that made me want to add that as a major, but Cornell actually didn't have archaeology as a major at that point in time. So I took a few extra anthro courses and also did an internship at the University of Iowa Office of the State Archaeologist, where my professor was the state archaeologist. So I got more into it then. Yeah. And then after I graduated a uh, long time ago, <laughs> I went actually to go work for the University of Iowa Office of the State Archaeologist. You know, initially as a um, you know field technician, lab technician, just doing the grunt work. But then uh, over the years, I started you know running my own small projects, and I became uh, assistant geomorphologist. So I was doing a lot of the the dirt work, as we'd say, you know, the stuff that the main geomorphologist didn't really want to do. Yeah, so I was getting into it then professionally, and then I started uh, for fun coming over to the Netherlands to excavate. Because the University of Iowa actually has a relationship with the city of Nijmegen in the eastern part of the Netherlands. And uh, they would send students over. Well, I wasn't a student, but I worked with had a number of colleagues that did their master's or PhD research in Nijmegen. And so I sent an email, and then I, me and a friend went and started excavating in the Netherlands. And I fell in love with the Netherlands. And so for a number of years after that, I returned to dig four months, two months, one month, whatever. And then uh, I got to a point where I sort of felt like I needed to go back to grad school. And uh, I was like, oh, why not check out Leiden? Because I knew it was a good archaeology school and uh, I wanted a change of pace. So I came here and started doing uh, my master's paleolithic archaeology because I figured, you know, paleolithic archaeology is pretty close to geology, right? <laughs> so I started doing that and, and, and also material culture studies. And that's during my master's, which began in 2011, is when I started getting into the, the, the fire business. Mm. It sounds like, and if I'm putting words into your mouth, please stop me, that you had some really wonderful and supportive mentors. Early oh, yes. On. Oh, yes. I'm a, I'm a big uh, advocate of it's, it's sort of who you know in this line of work. It, I had a lot of great opportunities from undergrad onwards that's just really paved the way uh, to where I am right now. Do you have any uh, words of wisdom for individuals maybe seeking a mentor and how to go about, you know, developing that relationship? I think uh, you get lucky. I mean, you go to a school and you end up with who's there. And sometimes you get on just fine and sometimes you don't. And uh, I've been very lucky that I've had really great mentors from the get-go and people who were who, who liked me, who liked my work, and who were, um, you know, bending over backwards to give me the, the jobs, uh, write the recommendation letters yes. to get me here. And then I get here and my advisor throughout this whole, my, my master's and PhD, uh, Professor Will Rubrooks, and he's been also equally supportive and just really going the extra mile to help me position myself to continue on in the field. Because, you know, after my master's, 
he hired me on as a junior researcher for about a year and a half. And during that time is when I was able to write my, my grant proposal that got me the funding for my PhD project. And so again, it was really about, you know, having uh, cultivating this really strong relationship that, that allowed him to give, to be willing to give me that time and money to stick around. So, I mean, luck is uh, absolutely a factor, mm -hmm. but at the same time, you really need to do your best to be present with the people who, you know, pull the purse strings, I, I guess, but also people who can connect you with the other people who can, uh, can set you up with a job. So going to all the meetings, being active within the faculty, doing your best to attend conferences is also super key. You know, rubbing elbows with the big names. It's really helpful to have people who you may need to email in the future be able to put a face to the name. And they're just, they're just going to be more apt to answer you and do their best to help you out. Mm -hmm. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speculate as well and suggest that that might be especially important given that you're taking a relatively controversial stance by claiming that Neanderthals could start fires. Um, mm -hmm. how, so you said you got into Neanderthals and fire as a master's student. So before mm -hmm. we sort of get to the, the spoiler or get to the, the juicy part, the meat, mm -hmm. how, how'd you get into that research? Well, actually, I, mean, I didn't really have a topic when I came over here to do my master's. So we were we, we took an inordinate amount of time to sort of feel our way through what is possible. And there was a number of other topics presented to me that just really weren't tripping my trigger. And um, and then Will, you know, he was he pointed me to some of this uh, earlier work by another Dutch archaeologist, uh, Dick Stoppertz, and his wife, uh, Lika Johansson. Um, from the late 90s, early 2000s, where they were using microware analysis to identify uh, strike lights, so these fire-making tools from the late Upper Paleolithic. And we'll mention that there were these interesting exotic flint uh, artifacts coming into the Eiffel region of Germany, so sort of the centr west central Germany, where most of the raw material is uh, is igneous, so or you know, some you know, a lot of quartz, a lot of uh, quartzites, metamorphic these sort of rocks, and not and very little flint. But they have a number of flint artifacts coming from the we the western or the eastern part of the Netherlands, and also uh, maybe a few from the Baltic. And so he he was just sort of well, maybe they were bringing in these tools because they may have been handy for making fire over the other local raw material. So it was just sort of an idea, and it's like, okay, well, let's let's play with this a little bit. And then my master's research was sort of focused on is more theoretical, like where I, mean, I came up with this thing called the uh, expedient strike light model, where I sort of looked at Neanderthal material culture and saw how expedient ad hoc the tools often were. So they were they were not really making a specific tool for a specific task, but just making flakes and uh, sometimes facial tools and whatnot that were used for almost anything and maybe for only a short period of time. So I thought, well, okay, well, if we apply this idea to the fire making kit, well, then one would expect to actually find very weak traces or, you know, very, the evidence would be much harder to identify compared to say later strike lights from Neolithic Bronze Age where they were more apt to have, you know, one tool for one task. And so the strike lights you find are often used probably potentially for years. The, the traces are so prevalent and so obvious, so you can really pick them out of a collection. 
And so I wanted to, to do some experiments and just play around with the idea of what would it look like if they were only using their tools for a very short period of time. So I, I did a little bit of looking through collections and found that it was very hard and I didn't really find anything during my master's. I sort of used that time to set up a theoretical framework for where we should look and what we should be looking for. And then that's what, the, what I started with. So I was able to hit the ground running when I started my PhD. Very nice. So if you could kind of dig in a little bit with the controversy to, to kind of set it up for everybody about what we are actually looking at here. Like, why is it important that we know if Neanderthals produced fire, they're able to create it or just procured it from natural fires? Why is this an important distinction that we should care about? I think the, the main distinction is that if you're reliant on natural fires, you have to wait around for one to be ignited somewhere in, the, in, in your neighborhood where you can go collect that fire, which is already problematic because depending on where you are or the season, you know, there may not be any uh, wildfires nearby for extended periods of time. It'd be one of those things where you would have to use it while you could and then do without again for potentially very long stretches of time. And on the other hand, you'd, if you did collect that fire, the amount of uh, effort and uh, fuel that it would require to, say, maintain a fire constantly so as not to lose your flame, it could be in some environments very prohibitive, especially, you know, during more glacial periods when, uh, you know, trees weren't very uh, prevalent in the landscape, especially, you know, like I've, most of my research areas focused in Northwest Europe. So during these glacial periods, trees would have been primarily restricted to, uh, you know, river valleys and whatnot. So some of these upland cave sites where you see less evidence for fire use during these cold periods could be related to just the fact that th that wood fuel would have been so sparse and that, yeah, you wouldn't have been able to keep a fire going constantly without an exceptional amount of effort. And, you know, and that's compared to, say, interglacial warm periods where the trees would have been all around these, these upland cave sites so, you know, grabbing another armload of fuel wouldn't have been such a big deal. And therefore, you could just have a fire going constantly. And so just it'd be easier during this period. So, so making fire sort of frees you from those uh, the shackles of nature, so to speak. So you can make fire as needed, you know, when you need it, where you need it. And then you, because you're no longer worried about losing your flame, if you only have an armload of fuel that you're gathering, you've picked up on your way to the cave, you know, from hunting or something, well, then you can make a, a task-specific fire to cook your food, maybe warm up a shelter briefly, and then uh, let it die without worries. Mm -hmm. So it, um, it really allows a lot more flexibility in how you, like, how you interact with the environment and how you're able to, you know, save that energy from fuel gathering. And that has, and, and you know, I'm sure we'll get into it a bit more later, but that has real potential, real ramifications for how fire manifests in the archaeological record. Because if you can make a fire uh, whenever you need to, you sort of expect maybe more fire traces. But if fuel is an issue and you're making these very short-term task-specific fires, those individual fires might make very, very weak archaeological signatures. So you could actually make you could actually produce weaker fire signals just because of that, because you didn't have the fire going all the time because of that additional fuel in the landscape. Uh, so let's just, since you kind of brought it up, let's dig on that to kind of get into the details of how would you recognize fire in the archaeological record? What do we see as the difference between 
Neanderthals and anatomically modern humans. And then three, maybe bring in your experimental work and how you design these experiments to start testing some of these things that you find in the archaeological record. Okay. Well, usually when you're looking for fire in the archaeological record, you have direct evidence and more indirect evidence. The direct evidence is sort of the products that are produced from combustion. So you, you have a hearth, charcoal, ash, and oftentimes um, the heat from the fire will heat the underlying sediment. And if there's iron in that sediment, it'll become like a bright red color. So you can see these sort of basin-shaped heated sediment features as well. And so those three together are usually what you'd find in a, in a nice preserved hearth feature. But the problem is, is the archaeological record is not so kind with this. Or actually, maybe, maybe it's geology's fault more than archaeology's fault. But the preservation, you know, sometimes these residues just will not preserve for, for, for any number of reasons. And so then you have to try to rely on what you call proxy evidence. So sometimes if you, have, if you put a hearth down in a cave and maybe people were there before the the, like uh, lived there at some other point, you might have a, a, a scatter of flint artifacts already in the sediment. And so that overlying hearth can heat those flint artifacts and make them change color or fracture in a certain way that is recognizable that it was caused by fire. And so you can, you can try to you can count those and identify clusters of those to try to zone in on where hearth might be or how often fire may have been introduced into the site. You also have... Uh, like uh, combusted or charred bones from uh, cooking their food or maybe tossing in bones uh, when they were done eating to sort of clean the place up a little bit. And so in some instances, those are preserved. Some sites at extremely high numbers, like percentages of burned or uh, charred bone hitting 50, 60, 70 percent of the assemblage. So these are what people tend to look to if the hearths aren't preserved. And so, so and you do see oftentimes in sites evidence of these proxy, fire proxies with no evidence of intact uh, combustion features. Let's see. And you asked about the difference between Middle Paleolithic, Neanderthal fire traces, and Upper Paleolithic. Well, the easy answer is there's not, they're not that different. Mm -hmm. The biggest thing that people like to point to between... Neanderthals and modern humans, as you see, after, especially once you start getting it past the ordination and into the Gravetsi, and you start seeing more structuring of hearths, so stone-lined hearths. But you also, in the ordination, you start seeing heart like pit hearths, so dug into the ground as a way to concentrate heat or protect the fire. But you, it, but you still, you actually also have hearth structuring in the Middle Paleolithic, maybe just not as often as far as we've seen. There's evidence of Neanderthal structuring hearths already over 300,000 years ago at like Kesson Cave in Israel. Heated use in the same space over and over again. And so they were, you know, structuring their space around this hearth feature very early on. But yeah, but the Upper Paleolithic record, there's this impression that you have more fire at sites than you do in the Middle Paleolithic, but um, nobody's really looked into it like, like really quantitatively to see well how many of these sites really have fire versus and, and layers with fire versus non-layer non-fire layers and so i mean that's something that i'm hoping to do in a future project assuming somebody uh gives me money at some point <laughs> yeah. we'll knock so on wood for you yeah <laughs> and so maybe to jump in on that before you dig into the experimental evidence yeah so you're saying that there isn't necessarily a ton of difference between what you're seeing between Neanderthals and anatomically modern humans as much. 
So why is this controversy a controversy? Is it just pure human exceptionalism, as you see I, in the popular articles? So what's going I, on there? I, I, I do think that there's quite a, a double standard at times when people are comparing Middle Paleolithic versus Upper Paleolithic evidence. And if you apply the standards that uh, some researchers apply to Middle Paleolithic fire to the Upper Paleolithic, they should come to a very similar conclusion that, you know, well, we're not sure that, Neander or that modern humans were necessarily using fire all the time, that it was a ubiquitous feature at every site and every occupation. Because, well, I mean, there are upper paleolithic layers with very weak or no fire evidence, but still archaeology in the sediments. So that's one problem. The other problem is when it comes to the fire-making tools, and, you know, we'll get into my uh, most recent paper here in a bit, I'm sure, but for, upper for the upper paleolithic, at least the early upper paleolithic, so the Argnation, Gravettian, Salutrian, so pretty much the period before the last glacial maximum around, you know, 20, 22,000 years ago, there's virtually no evidence of fire making. Mm. In the literature, I know of one strikolite tool that's been identified from a Gravettian deposit and one pyrite nodule, which is what you use to make the sparks when you're uh, with the flint, that, uh, when you're making fire, the, the percussive method. There's one pirate nodule from a site in Germany called Vogelherd that uh, has some evidence of having been battered, and, and they interpret that as from, from fire making. But other than a couple, a couple other possible strikolites that I've heard of that aren't published yet from colleagues, that's it. That's the fire making record for you know, the first 25,000 years of the Upper Paleolithic. Now, I'm not saying that they weren't making fire. I'm, I'm, I'm quite confident they were. I just think there's this there's similar issues when it comes to identifying these fire-making tools that I sort of was trying to get over for the uh, Middle Paleolithic. I think these same uh, uh, issues need to be confronted for the Upper Paleolithic as well. And I really would like to try to fill that gap in more. And that sort of leads me in, I guess, to your question about the experiments. Can I ask you one more follow-up question? Oh, I'm sorry. Go, go a slight background. I mean, I study... And I mean, modern humans and their physiological responses, mm -hmm. cold extremes. And so I find right. very fascinating from my perspective. Uh, and I saw one of the arguments in that BBC article you sent us, the article saying like Neanderthals couldn't, you know, produce fire. And they were saying they didn't need to because they were physiologically capable of surviving in these interglacial climates without it. And having just spent a month at the Arctic Circle in January, Sure. I find that incredibly hard to believe that fire wasn't a huge part of a survival tactic for Neanderthals. Right. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm still a bit on the fence with regards to whether or not Neanderthals needed fire, per se, or just really liked to use it. I mean, even we, I would say, you know, in certain situations, even we don't need fire. We have other other various adaptive uh, behaviors that help us counter the cold. We put on extra clothes. You can huddle together in a cave and use each other's body heat. You can uh, to warm up to stay warm at night. You can build shelters and windbreaks. And I, I'm get and I'm you know I'm sure these people were much more capable of handling the the cold we make our own microclimates anymore so we're super we're always at you know room temperature whether we're outside in these nice big jackets or uh, in, in your car with the heater on or in your house so it's like we I think we're a bit soft compared to um, these people and I think they certainly would have had physiological adaptions that make them better 
at coping. I mean, you see it also among modern humans today. There's a great study, it's a couple studies from like the 50s, I'm forgetting the guy's name right now, but he actually went and hung out with uh, Aborigines in Australia. And I mean, these people are naked all the time, but it's, it's bloody hot during the day. But at night, it becomes really, really cold. And they didn't have clothes, they didn't use blankets. They would make uh, maybe a small warming fire nearby, but basically it was, it was still very, very cold. And they found that these people, despite being you know, warm adapted, actually were also cold adapted because their, their, their core body temperature would drop a few degrees at night. And it, that helped, that allowed them to sleep comfortably. They had, you know, I'm sure if they were measured for this nowadays, I'm sure they would have had a, a more a larger amount of a, like brown fat, brown adipose tissue. Um, in their body that helps with this, what's called non-shivering thermogenesis, because they found that these people when they were sleeping didn't shiver. Whereas when they put the Western uh, folks in the same situation, they barely slept because they were so cold and shivering the whole night long, and they, they just they couldn't hack it. Um, the exact study you're talking about, and they used rectal thermal couples? Yeah, rect yeah it's going like, to be uncomfortable. It's gonna could be, I uh, actually get that past IRB today? No, <laughs> not. maybe, I don't know, but... Uh, so I'm sure that Neanderthals were better off than we were in many respects and could have gotten by without fire. But I mean, as if someone, you know, uses something regularly and they become accustomed to it, I think it's something that they would go out of their way to acquire and maintain if they could. It's like, you know, we like our air conditioning. We don't need it. We get by without it. But when the time calls for it, we want to hit the switch and enjoy the comfort that comes with this little bit of, uh, you know, this, this, this cooling. Well, the, I think Neanderthals would have certainly been similar with regards to fire. It's something that was very handy and that they they used regularly. Whether, could they have gotten on without it? I'm sure. And I think we could also get on without it for quite a while if we had to. So let um, me ask a really quick clarifying question because I think, sure. I think the answer may be implicit, but I want to spell it out for other listeners like myself who may not actually know the answer why are you studying neanderthals and not anatomically modern humans at that period of time in france are they just not there is there when we ask the difference in other words between anatomically modern humans and neanderthals you compared upper and middle paleolithic so is there a, a correspondence there well i mean the i think the main reason i went the Neanderthal route was because, well, we know modern humans could make fire. You know, we have that evidence. I mean, you see much more after the last glacial maximum, you know, with the Magdalenian and whatnot, you start seeing fire making technology picking up archeologically. So I know that we as modern humans were capable of and did make fire. And we have some of this scant evidence from, from earlier periods of modern humans, but uh, there just was pretty much nothing for the Neanderthals, so I thought it was a bit of a challenge, but also that I just I just don't think people were looking, and or knew exactly what to look for. So that was the idea: is just to make a concerted effort to try to find, you know, evidence supporting this idea, and then hopefully, you know, with that evidence, if I found it, we could have a more nuanced discussion about what fire meant to these people. I think we have now put it off long enough. Let's get to the experimental work that you do to try to tease all this apart and figure out if the fire is actually produced or utilized from nature. All right. Well, 
when you're talking about fire making, the presence of fire on a site isn't super helpful because a hearth that you ignited with your fire making tools or a hearth that you reignited from an ember that you brought from another site or from a, a forest fire nearby, it's going to look the same. The fire is fire. And so even seeing more prevalent use of fire in a certain period doesn't necessarily mean that they were making it. So, I mean, for, for me, the only real proper way to prove that somebody was making fire artificially is to find the tools that they used to do it. So, of course, you have what people generally think of when they're when somebody's making fires, you know, rubbing two sticks together. And with, so the wood friction method, it's very possible that Neanderthals and, uh, you know, the early or modern humans uh, were using this method. But the problem with that is, is it's made of wood. It doesn't preserve very well. I mean, you have these really nice breakout instances like the Schoening and Spears in Germany, that, you know, from, you know, 300, 400,000 years old. You have um, some digging sticks in Italy that were found recently that are about 170,000 years old. Um, you had, I think, another digging stick from a bit from a younger uh, deposits in Spain, I believe. I mean, so you have these instances where you do have some wood preserved, but it's very, very rare. And so it's, it's not the greatest avenue to look for fire-making material. Another problem with wood friction fire-making tools is the second that they're no longer useful, if the fire drill gets too short or the hardboard that you're drilling into gets uh, used up, it's just another piece of firewood, <laughs> you know, toss it on and it's gone. So I wanted to focus on the percussive fire making methods, as I said, using uh, flint or some other hard uh, material like silicious quartz-based mineral to strike pyrite, which is an iron sulfide mineral. And when you strike the pyrite with the flint, flint detaches these small pieces of pyrite that, and because of the force of the removal, creates this exothermic reaction that is what results as your sparks. And those get those fall onto some sort of fluffy uh, tinder material, and that's how you can make your fire. The nice thing about these these tools is, well, especially the flint, it preserves really well archaeologically. The traces, you know, depending on the depositional environment, may or may not be preserved, at least the microscopic traces. But, I mean, you have a much, much higher chance that these tools would be there to be found. And since we know that from later periods, like I said, Magdalenian, late Upper Paleolithic, Neolithic, Bronze Age, and even modern ethnographic data shows that people were using this method regularly, all around the world in certain areas, but specifically, you know, during the, the later Stone Age uh, in Europe, they were definitely using this very, very often. There's way more evidence of progressive fire making than wood friction fire making. It's very sparse. So that's kind of the main reason I went that route is just because I had you know, probability was on my side. And so, well, what you, and then what you do when, when you do uh, microware analysis is you have the archaeological tools and in order to know what these traces mean on archaeological tools, you need to perform experiments. So you make your own flint tools and then use them for various tasks. Uh, and for me, since I'm looking at fire making, I wanted to do a bunch of experiments with mineral materials. So maybe using um, a piece of flint for flint napping or retouching or you know, being as an abrader for whatever reason, a pounding tool all sorts of things, but also fire making. And so for my most recent paper about these Neanderthal fire making tools that were, or these, these hand axe tools, these, these large bifacial tools, 
so I, I made some and had made for me a bunch of hand axes and then tried to use them as fire making tools. And so once you've done that, you look on, you clean them and you look under the microscope and you try to compare. So what looks most close to what you see archaeologically? And we generally don't like to say in microware analysis that we've identified something because you, there could be, no, there's a, okay, there's a, there's a thing called um, equifinality. So meaning that two different tasks could result in very similar traces. And so it's, it's impossible to test all of the combinations, but you, you do what you, you try to do as many as you can. And then you find the traces that are closest and you, you make an inference. You try to infer the use. And um, so, yeah, so you, you suggest this idea and then people can buy it or not. And hopefully, you know, some people who don't buy it are like, I'm going to prove you wrong. And then they go to the experiment. <laughs> And uh, maybe maybe there's something I missed, and so um, and if if they are able to generate very similar traces doing some other task that was possible during the same period, well then you can have a conversation like okay, then it's about parsimony and you know which is more likely and you know looking more at the nuance between these two methods and how can you distinguish between them. You literally told us how the sausage of the science yeah. is made, so that that's what we're all about. My interest is in the cognitive interpretations of what's going on here. And I threw this question in there because my literature that I've been using is possibly dated. So in the 90s, Stephen Mithen, cognitive archaeologist, wrote Prehistory of the Mind and mm -hmm. suggested that Neanderthal or early humans, I think he was saying, had widely distributed areas of activity so that they'd be flint napping over there, they'd be the fire would be over there. And what he suggested was different with modern human hearth orientations what, was that everything seemed to be taking place around the hearth, enabling them to be more creative and share ideas. And I wonder mm -hmm. what the status of that, that hypothesis or that scenario is. Do we see evidence for more integrative, creative activity in Neanderthals based on your work? Not necessarily based on my work, but certainly other people's, I would say, yeah. I mean, okay, if you want to talk to uh, Robin Dunbar, you know, the social brain hypothesis, he's saying that, that hanging around parse would have been happening, a, you know, a million and a half years ago, and, and already then would have been fostering this more cohesive social structure, the idea of planning ahead, you know, uh, talking about what they're going to do tomorrow, and discussing what happened today and then, you know, storytelling and just the advancement of some element of culture. So I'm, some people think this happens super early. With regards to structuring of space around a hearth, so like a more hearth-centric distribution of a person's uh, site, well, I mentioned Kesem Cave uh, earlier in Israel, and there you, again, have this over 300,000-year-old central hearth feature that was used over and over and over again. And it appeared to have been structured as well. So it's all their material culture was around this heart. You see similar distributions um, later on, like at uh, Abacromani in Spain, where you have tons and tons of fire traces, layer after layer. And then you have these just napping scatters all around these fires. And they also have inferred one area where you have some hearths, very, very little flint artifacts, and they interpret these as maybe sleeping areas where they would have had some warming fires at night. And so that, that's a definite structure in your space. You, that, the same thing has been 
inferred for site of Tor Barrage in Jordan, another middle Paleolithic site, where they also think they've identified sleeping areas with uh, sleeping hearths nearby. But with regards to other uh, structuring of space with Neanderthals, you can absolutely look to, uh, I don't know if you saw the news a few years ago about the Brunekeel Cave in France, where deep, deep in the cave, like hundreds of meters into the cave, they found this, like two circles of stalagmites. Hundreds of stalagmites were knocked down in the back of this cave and arranged into two circular structures hmm. on which they placed multiple fires. It dates to like 170 some thousand years ago. It would have been dark, dark, dark down there. So they would have needed fire to get back there. And they had fire because there's tons of evidence that they were, they had fires placed on top of the stalagmites in this circle. What on earth it was used for, that's still a real big question. But I mean, people do like to, and I mean, it's not someplace you'd necessarily want to live because it's, 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 it's really far away. It's going to be very dark. It's probably going to be pretty damp. The, the R word is thrown out, ritual. You know, what could they have been doing back with this, these structures? So it's, it's a real enigma, but, but very interesting. But this idea is further supported by findings from this past year about the, the probable Neanderthal rock art in mm -hmm. Spain, where you have these three caves where they dated pigment, like, like ochre pigments on the walls of these caves with a uranium series dating, and we're able to show that on a, at least one of these sites, these dated to over 60,000 years old. And there were no more humans in Europe before, you know, 45, 50 if you're stretching it, but usually not before 45,000 and certainly not in Spain. Yeah. So this gives another element to, you know, Neanderthals were capable of these more you know, artsy fartsy modern human uh, activities and behaviors. And same with uh, like shell pendants and, and jewelry. You do have some limited, it's limited, but you do have some evidence of this um, in also in Spain at the Cueva Anton, um, you have you have also early evidence of uh, jewelry being used by Neanderthals. I just so want I'm, to interject for listeners that you did air quotes on modern humans. So so we're yeah, sorry. we're we're, <laughs> we're uh, that's okay. We're we're the crowd for that kind of thing. We're poo pooing the idea that this is all modern. Yeah, this is all essentially modern behavior, and it, and it. It goes back to Kara's question about the exceptionalism of humanness. I didn't mean to cut you off. We're just sort of running out of time here. Um, and I would love to, to talk more about this. It sounds like you're blazing a trail. Good pun there, right? I was about to say pun totally intended. Kara, you want to ask our wrap-up question? Yeah, sure. This is always the fun question. And you can choose which part you actually want to answer. Uh, so what are you reading, watching, or listening to for fun these days? <laughs> well, <laughs> I guess um, one of the perks of my job is it's also sort of my hobby. So I am often, much to my wife's chagrin, uh, very boring at home. I just finished David Reich's genetics book about the sort of the genetic revolution, which is super interesting for us these days. I'm not great with literature. I mean, I do to try to do more reading of novels. Um, my, my wife and I, I read to her in bed. And so we were just at the tail end of the book, uh, The Power. Oh my goodness, I just finished that, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I read that while I was Finland, so I'm like yeah. super yeah. excited about that book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so that one, that one was pretty fun. Um, 
I'm, I'm just starting a new novel by uh, Daniel Quinn. I'm really a fan of his stuff. Okay. Um, I like that. I, th- I think it's funny that most of our guests apologize because they read, they like what they do and they read about yeah. it. They're like, I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I don't think we need to apologize for liking what we do and wanting to read more. I think it's, it's a good sign. Yeah. So then how can folks learn more about your work, find you on Twitter, all that jazz? I, you can follow me on Twitter. My name is Pyropithecus. Uh, <laughs> good handle. You can figure out how to spell that yourself. Yeah, Google me. I mean, we didn't talk too heavily about it, but my last paper did identify fire-making tools among, uh, made by Neanderthals, 50,000 years old. That came out back in July. And uh, so if you Google Andrew Sorensen fire, um, you're going to get articles from Washington Post, LA Times, Atlantic, Newsweek, etc., that will give you a good overview of this last paper where, you know, actively shown that Neanderthals were making fire. And so we'll now the, have that paper in our show notes for you. So that people Oh, great. Thank you. That'd be great. So yeah. So now the next thing is just, well, can we chase that uh, technology back farther in time? And then as I discussed earlier, also try to close that gap with the early upper Paleolithic. We'll see how it goes. I can't wait. We're all going to stay tuned. Yeah. Awesome. Andy, this has been really fun talking to you. Thank you so much for being on the show. Pleasure all mine. I'm really, really appreciate the invitation. 